I'm going to start in Acts chapter 2, and let me, let me begin by setting up this series. Um, we, we called it Together, and one of the great mysteries um, of the gospel um, is that the cross, when Jesus goes to the cross, he accomplishes at least two things. One of the two things is super obvious, and everybody who's anybody who's heard the name Jesus knew that he accomplished the first one. It's the second one that I think is a mystery to like half of us, like, like we are more than half of us, that, that it's like, oh, I, I see that now. I, I need to know more of that. Here, here's the first thing, and everybody knows this already, is that when Jesus goes to the cross, he restores and corrects our vertical relationship with God. He makes it possible for you and I to have a relationship with God, the Creator, and God our Father that is healthy, that is a two-way street, that we get to pray to Him, and He listens to us, and He blesses us, and, and He gives us things to do, and we can serve Him. But that relationship that was once broken is restored. And if, if you've ever heard Jesus, you're like, well, yeah, duh, Jesse, like John 3, 16, hello. Um, but then, then there's a the second element that I think kind of catches us off guard if we're not careful, and that whenever Jesus goes to the cross, He not only restores the virtue vertical relationship with us and God, he restores our horizontal relationships between us and us. He makes it possible for you and I to get along, that, that there's really nothing that is different enough between me and you, whether it be money in the bank or skin color on my arm or you know the way I comb my hair or what politician I vote for. There's really nothing that is different enough between us that is stronger than what the cross has accomplished in being able to restore our horizontal relationships with each other. I'm going to unpack that horizontal relationship bit here in a minute. In Acts chapter 2, uh, the guy who wrote Acts, his name is Luke. Uh, I like that name. I named my son Luke. Um, he, he is not someone that we think met Jesus face to face. Nowhere does he say, hey, I hung out with Jesus. What it looks like happened is, is that Dr. Luke, he was a medical guy, um, he had heard so much about Jesus that he decided he wanted to kind of take off his doctor hat and put on his investigator hat, his like news reporter hat, and he, and he starts traveling around. And even though he never met Jesus, he starts interviewing people who did. He interviews Peter. He, he ends up talking to Paul and kind of living life with Paul for a while. He, he probably went and interviewed a blind man who, who restored his sight. He may have even went and interviewed Lazarus. Could you imagine? Like, uh, okay, on, the, on October 4th, it appears you were dead. Is that true, sir? Yeah, that's true. And like, he just kind of goes on. And he, he documents everything, and then he hands us the book of Luke, and he hands us the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, what he's wanting to do is he's trying to document how the first church that ever came to be churched. Or to put it another way, how the first church who ever churched would church as they were churching along the church path. Nobody's ever churched ever before Acts chapter 2. The, the, the gospel, had, nobody, nobody said, yeah, I want to be a part of the church. And so when we read the first church that ever church, it's, it's powerful to see like how things got started. Like you and I, we're at Carpenter's Way. We're churching together right now. This is the first group of people to ever do that. You know how we have a church on every corner? It was the only church in the world at this point. So Acts chapter 2, like, okay, they were probably messed up, right? Because, I mean, like, we're still trying to figure it out. Maybe they didn't have it all figured out. Let's, let's see how the first church churched. Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 42. And it says, and they, and let's talk about the they real quick. These are the people who were churching. The verse before it says that it's at least 3,000 people. 3,000, that's a big old church, you know what I'm saying? Like a 3,000 person church, and they, here's what they did. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, I like that. 
The, the way that you and I devote ourselves to the apostle teaching is what we're doing right now. We're, we open up the Bible. The apostles wrote you know, a good portion of the New Testament. We're reading it. We're, we're studying it. We're devoting ourselves to their teaching. They didn't do it that way. The New Testament wasn't written yet. The way that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching is like, yo, somebody go get Peter. I got a question. And like Peter would come in. Apostle comes in. He's like, hey, uh, tell me about that walking on water thing again. He's like, okay, here's what. I kid you not, man. I put my foot down. And there it was. It was a little wet, but I didn't sink. And he tells the story. They would devote themselves to the apostles' teachings because the apostles themselves were there answering the questions. Like, I would love to have been in a room with that. Like, the, the walking on water one, I think, would be my funnest because Peter gets out of the boat, he walks on water, and then he starts sinking. Everybody, I think, knows this story. And then if it's me, I'm like, golly, Peter, you don't even have enough faith to stand on the water long enough. And Peter, he'd be like, dude, Nobody else got out of the boat. Look, he looks around, he talks to John, he's like, did you get out of the boat? I didn't, I wish I did. And like, they're just talking to each other and they would hear what Jesus, like they would say, hey, uh, one time we were sitting by the fire and you know, Jesus was just reminiscing and kind of talking about what heaven was like and he was talking about, he was talking about what, what, what it would be like whenever things would be restored one day and all the, right, all the wrongs were righted and he was telling us about that. And when they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, they're hearing it first person, it says, and uh, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and the fellowship. If you have a Baptist background, that involves a casserole of some kind. Uh, for, for everyone, including them, it would involve food at least, but also just hanging out and doing stuff together. Um, if, if you hang out with anybody else in this room, like your community group, or you just got some friends that you go out and grill, that's called fellowshipping. The Bible would call that churching. Like, it, it, sometimes we think we can only church when we come in this room on a Sunday morning. Uh-uh. When you get together with other Christians and you hang out and you have fun, you go golfing or like shooting animals and hunting. Shooting animals sounds violent. Hunting. Uh, if you go fishing together, if you, whatever you do and you're like, hey, I'm just hanging out with my buddy. Great. You hang out with your buddy, but that's also the Bible would call that fellowshipping and it's, it's a way that they churched in the beginning. And it says to the breaking of bread, got the yum yums in, and prayers. We, we pray together. Verse 43, and all came upon every soul. I'm, I'm going to, this will be my third time trying this. Everybody, everybody say all. See, yeah, I, I love you. You tried, you listened, um, but we're not talking about puppy dogs here. Like you, like you see a puppy dog, you cute little baby, oh, you little precious thing. When they said, oh, it's that all, like you're just like, oh, like this thing's so big. It's like, oh, like you're speechless. You couldn't, you couldn't believe what was, what was going on. First service did the puppy dog thing too. Don't worry about it, you're fine. Um, when, when the first church was churching, it says that they acted in such a way that all came upon every soul. They were, they were speechless. They were, they were amazed at how well they were taking care of each other. This is a region, a group of people that has been at war since the first people ever showed up there. They, were, they, they know nothing but conflict. And now all of a sudden that there's a name that's named Jesus, and it's big enough that no matter what your skin color was, no matter what side of the religion line you were on, no matter how much money you had in the bank, everybody came together and they had Oh, they were speechless about how it was working, how it was going. I'm, I'm, the more I talk about it, like the more I'm like, I want to be a part of something like that. That sounds nice, doesn't it? It says, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. What we know about this first church is that they were speechless about how they were getting along, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. And every time someone in the group had something that they needed, someone else in the group had a way to get that need met. And if money was the issue, they would 
sell land to make sure that enough money was taken care of. You got to take your kid to the hospital and you can't pay the bill. I'm going to sell this four acres to make sure that your kid can go to the hospital. They took care of each other and there was nothing that would stop it. And this first church that ever churched grew and grew and grew because it was contagious. Because people wanted to know more about like, how, how is that possible? How is it that this, this olive-skinned person, this brown-skinned person, this light-skinned person can all get along? Because uh, if I remember right, about three months ago, we all hated each other. This is like a month after the cross. We all hated each other, and now we're like selling land to take care of each other? How and why is that possible? One of the answers to that, uh, Jesus gives us in uh, John chapter 13. In John 13... This is about a month and a half before what I just read uh, in Acts 2. Uh, Jesus is in what we call the upper room, and he's doing what we now call the Lord's Supper. At the time, it's just like, hey, we're, we're just eating a meal here, okay? Uh, but uh, they're doing the Lord's Supper. Um, Jesus has all of his disciples there, and you know some of the story. Like, he washes Judas's feet, and Judas is like, yo, I'm out of here. I'm going to go betray you, and he takes off. Uh, Peter's like, hey, I'll go wherever you go, and uh, Jesus is like, no, you won't. You have no idea what you're saying, you dummy. Uh, and they have all these conversations. All of this is happening. A few hours after what I'm about to read, Jesus leaves that room and he goes to the garden and he prays that God would take the cross away from him. He's like, God, if there's any other way than the cross, please let us go that way instead. And God's like, no, you're, you're going to the cross. Like we're in a really stressful moment. And here's what Jesus says in, in John 13. John 13, uh, verse 34, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Let's pause for a second. Everybody just say, yeah, duh. You, you, like, we know we're supposed to, like, take care of you. Like, we know we're supposed to love each other. I mean, I don't have to like them, but I love them. We use that line a lot, don't we? Like, I don't like you, but I love you. Because I have to, and Jesus made me. Uh, but, it, it, like, you know, Jesus says, I want, I'm going to command you that you love one another. Um, but then he adds this qualifier, and this qualifier changes everything. How do we love one another, Jesus? I give you this command that you love one another, comma, just, or colon, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And here's where things get sticky for me and you. Because the way that Jesus loves you is that despite every junky thing you've ever done in your life and he knew about, he still goes to the cross for you. See, the problem I run into is that the, the more like I, I grow and I learn about who Jesus is and I start trusting him with different things, the more I realize despite every junky thing in G Jesse's heart, Jesus still loves me. I'm like, I'm thankful for that. But then I read this, and every time I realize that that's the case, I'm commanded by my Lord to love you the same way he loved me. Even when I was a jerk, Jesus loved me, which means even when you're a jerk to me, I'm commanded to love you. Even, even whenever I fail you, I, uh, I, or even when you fail me, rather, I should love you because even whenever I let God down, he still shows me love. It, it's like this two-edged sword that it puts a heavy weight on us. Here, here's how he finishes that. That last verse, verse 35, and he says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if, this love, if you have love for one another. You are not expected to have like huge, like, systematic theology books and like this nerdy, like, let me get my pocket protector and tell you all the things I know about the Trinity. Nobody's going to be moved by that. You may have all of the answers and you may know like all the political statements to say, but do you know how everybody in this world is going to know that there's something different about you? It's not in what you know. It's not even in so much in what you do. Like you can, you can, you can go on all the mission trips in the world, but if you're not loving one another the way that Jesus loved you, 
it doesn't move the needle. But if you do, if you do love each other in this room the same way that Jesus loved you, what Jesus says will happen is that other people will start to take notice. And they're going to start to look at you, and they're going to know that there's something different about you. Here's what I think. I think that the first church that ever church grew so quickly and so fast because this group of people that hated each other and had no reason to take care of each other started loving each other so stinking well that everybody in the world was like, whoa, what is happening? What is going on here? I want to hear more about that. And what may actually end up happening is that as we step out in faith in this and start loving each other well and our horizontal relationships start to heal, someone out there may see that and say, I want to know more about that. And as they step in here, then they hear about how their vertical relationship with God can be restored. And then they have the one-two punch of the gospel. And it's like they're starting to live this thing out. There's hope again. In uh, Galatians uh, chapter 6, Paul is writing about this, and like if we date this, uh, I, didn't, I didn't look it up to be sure, so if, if you correct me, I'll take your word on it, but we're looking at somewhere between five and ten years after the church has started at this point. Uh, the church has been churching for a few years, and Paul wants to kind of remind the church of, hey, here's how you're supposed to love each other. In, in Galatians 6, he says this. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, big words, so let's, let's look at, someone show me like what it looks like when you're caught like in trouble, like, <laughs> You do something, you're like, oh, I didn't do it. Uh, you're caught in transgression. I, I think of like, uh, you ever see like uh, America's Funniest Home Videos and like the kid is like sneaking around the corner. It's like the mom's like, ha ha. And the kid's like, ah. That look of, ah, caught in transgression. Uh, I have a two-year-old who, he's always caught in transgression. And, and the way that he looks when he's caught, he's like, I'm like, son, I told you. He's like, oh, okay, okay. And he starts like covering up. And he's like, he's running around. He clenches and he runs because I mean like, don't beat my kid. Don't, don't misunderstand me. Uh, but I'm like, hey, kid, you know not to touch the electric outlet. And then he's like, oh, sorry. And then he runs because he's caught in transgression. That's how he looked. And it says, the Bible says that anyone who is caught in transgression, there are some steps that we should take. Now I told your teenagers, uh, because, you know, sometimes, sometimes sixth graders and eighth graders and 11th graders, 12th graders, they have a habit of when you catch someone in transgression, you go and talk about it. You know what I'm saying? I know adults don't do that. Like, adults have no problems gossiping. Like, I'm, that's only a teenager lesson. Uh, but sometimes when we catch someone doing bad, our knee-jerk reaction is like, you get on the phone and you call someone, you're like, you never guess. That fool was drunk in the street. You won't believe it. And you're like, oh, well, I mean, that was fun. Felt good. But what, what, is, what does Paul say we're supposed to do when we catch someone in transgression, when someone's like, they're caught? And I don't mean that they didn't do it. They did it, and they know they did it. What should we do? If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Then instead of getting on social media and snapping about the thing you just saw Sally do, what we're called to do, those of us who are spiritually mature, is to go and partner alongside them and restore that person in gentleness. Not talk about them behind their back. Just go partner up with them and say, hey, let's, let's figure this out. And then he adds a warning here. He says, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. There's this, there's this risk that as you partner up with someone who's struggling with something, instead of them getting better, you end up struggling with the same thing. That's a risk. And he says, hey, be careful that that doesn't happen. But the answer to that's built into this, that if that does happen, then I or someone else should partner up next to you and restore you in gentleness. Like we just make a train of restoring and gentleness uh, as we go that we keep watch on each other, that we, that we take care of each other, that we restore each other. He goes on, he says this, he says in verse two, he says, bear one another's burdens 
and so fulfill the law of Christ. What Paul thinks here is that if we're going to live up to that command that Jesus gave us to love one another the way that I've loved you, the way that we do that is when we catch someone in transgression, we restore them in gentleness. And then we bear one another's burdens, and then we fulfill the law of Christ. You in here, some of you have burdens. And, and you carry them all by yourself. And the weight of them are so heavy. And some of those burdens are so real, I can't do anything to fix it. it it's something that happened in the past, or it's something that's so big, I, I, I don't have the power to handle it. But Paul doesn't say the answer to this is me fixing your burdens, or anybody else in here fixing your burdens. What it says is bear one another's burdens. The imagery is this, is that there should be nobody in this church that is carrying the weight of whatever the burden is by themselves. It may not be possible for anybody in this room to take that burden off your shoulders or to fix it, but it is 100% possible for me to say, listen, I know what you're going through. I'm going to bear it with you. I know what your children are putting you through. I'm going, to, I'm going to pray with you. I know it's hard whenever your parents start aging and, and you're starting to think of those last stages of life. I, I, I can't fix it, but I can bear it with you. I know that your work is hard and you're wanting to quit every day, and I can't do anything about that because I can't hire you, but I'm going to bear it with you. That no matter what, the first church was bearing one another's burdens, that Carpenter's Way should bear one another's burdens so that none of us carries a pain and a stress by ourselves. It's one of the secrets I think that the first church had. Now, if, if you will, look in Acts chapter 4, and here's, here's where things start to get interesting, because the first church that ever churched, it would be easy to say, well, like, sure, Jesse, like, if you're cynical in here like me, like, sure, they got it right for a while, but how long did they keep that going? Like, honestly, like, how many, how many pieces of land are you going to sell before you're like, yo, quit doing that thing, I'm selling off all my land. Like, how, how, how long until someone starts taking advantage of the situation and then they stop treating each other so nicely and stop taking care of each other? Well, that, that's interesting because in Acts chapter 4, here's, here's what we hear about the church. It's grown. It's grown two chapters at this point. And it says in 32, it says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. They were still working it out. They still had unity in their group. They were, they were still taking care of each other. And it says, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common, that they were continuing to take care of each other's needs. They're like, yo, man, you need, you need my camel to go to the store? Take my camel. Here are the keys. That's a dumb metaphor. And, and like, it was just like whatever they had, it wasn't mine, 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 mine. It's, man, I'll take care of you. I'll help you out. I'll do what I can. And it says, uh, but they had everything in common. Verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. I love the picture of that. Because again, the apostles aren't, they're not just reading it. They're, they're saying it right there. Could you imagine, like how many times, if, if you knew a man, if you knew a man who had a funeral and then three days later went and hung out with his friends, how many times do you think you would ask to hear that story before you're bored with it? Like uncle so-and-so, we were at his funeral and then, like, he was at the family reunion next month. This is crazy. Like, you say he died. I know. That's what I'm saying. He died, and then he came back. Well, that's kind of the life that they have right here. Jesus died, and then he came back. Peter was at Jesus' funeral, and then he saw Jesus resurrected, and they would just talk about the resurrection all the time. 
Peter, tell me again. Well, I was on the beach, and this man shows up and says, throw the net on the other side. I'm like, don't tell me what to do. I'm a fisherman. But then he does it, and then he gets all these fish. It's like, it's crazy. And I was like, it's Jesus. And then there's this picture there that Peter, like, he just dives in the water, swims to the bank, but then the boat beats him to the bank. It's like Forrest Gump. You know, you see him like, Lieutenant Dan, he runs off the edge of the boat. That's what Peter did. And they would always talk about, like, let me tell you about this resurrection. Let me tell you about this Jesus who, who came back. And he keeps going. He says in verse... Uh, Verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. You know, the first church had great grace. Grace only exists when there's a need for grace. You know, you don't give grace to the kid who has all hundreds on his report card, right? There has to be a problem for grace to begin happening. Grace isn't there when things are going great. And why that's really helpful for me in in talking to you is that the first church who ever church that was churching so well was not perfect. You know how I know they weren't perfect? Because they had grace for each other. They took care of each other. You only have grace whenever someone was mean and you decided not to get mad. Then you showed them grace. And when someone made an ugly remark to you, they showed grace to it. When someone, when someone should have showed up but then they didn't because, because of whatever, they make some dumb excuse, there was grace there. Here, here's what is hopeful to me. So the first church that ever church that was churching so well They weren't perfect, and you and I aren't perfect. Here's what I know. I know that if you rely on Jesse long enough, Jesse will let you down. You will call me. I won't return the phone call. You'll say something to me. I won't respond in the way that I should have. I will let you down. And in honesty, you're going to let me down. You're going to let each other down. Everybody in here is going to let somebody down. And it would be easy to say in that moment, I'm done. I'm out. They hurt my feelings. They didn't call. They didn't pray. I'm done. But it says that the first church that was churching so well that took care of each other, they had grace for each other. We can have grace with each other. Um, In uh, Ephesians, I'll read this quickly. In Ephesians 4, Paul sums it up this way. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. He's always in prison, that that guy. He would never pass the background check to be in our children's ministry here. Like Paul shows up, hey, can I be a small group leader in the youth group? I'm like, dude, you've been to prison so many times. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. What Paul is saying, like, from his prison cell is that he's looking at this church, and he would say it to Carpenter's Way right here. It's like, you guys, we need to live in a way that is worthy of what we've been given, worthy of what we've been called to do. Don't don't treat this churching thing so light that we just, like, ignore each other, but that we take care of each other. We should walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Well, how, Paul? He says, with all humility and gentleness. Like, we're just humble. We're not too proud. We're gentle with each other. We're patient with each other. There he goes again, bearing. He says, bearing with one another in love. Verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We're eager. We fight for unity instead of taking every mistake as a reason to just say, I'm done. I don't want to be here. I don't want to be a part of that group anymore. I'm eager to maintain the unity. Here's, here's what I want to do. I did this um, in the first service. Um, sometimes I end a message, I'm like, hey, here, here are like four things. I think that sums all this up. You don't need four things to sum this up. I'm not going to sum up this series. It, it is what it is. Like, like We are called to church well. What I think we need is a space and a time to just do some business with God. And here's what I'm going to challenge you to do. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to say something, and I'm just going to give you a moment, like a 30-second beat, just the, you and God, not you and the person next to you, not a conversation, but you and God to talk about this. Here, here's the first thing. Who is it 
that you need to forgive. We know we're supposed to forgive one another, and, and we sometimes just, we just hang on to anger. Here, here's what I know about forgiveness. Sometimes someone didn't wrong you and you misunderstood it, and you just need to forgive them because that's dumb. But there are other times where that person genuinely wronged you, and you're hanging on to it. You, it's fueled you. For the last decade or more, you use that anger to get so many things done, but you know something about it. Even before I say it, you know this is true, that that anger you've been holding on to has been rotting you out from the inside like a bad apple. And the only, even your friends are like, you don't have to forgive him. He's a jerk. Hate him. No, the Bible says forgive. And here's my challenge to you, is that this morning, you forgive that person. And if you can't find it in yourself to do it, and that's possible, I'm okay with that. God already knows that before I say it. Then in this moment that you have to talk to God, talk to him and be like, God, I think I'm supposed to forgive this guy, this girl, and I can't. Like, I'm mad at him. Can you help me out here? Just do something? God, God, God knows how to, how to help you out with that. Who is it that you need to forgive? I'll give you a minute. The flip of that is, for some of you, going to be scarier than the first. Who is it out there that you need to ask forgiveness from? Maybe there's somebody out there that you didn't mean to hurt. It was an accident. And, you know, one thing led to another, and they got their feelings hurt. And you, up until now, just ignored it, hoping, like, if I don't address it, like, we'll all pretend it didn't happen. But every time you see that person, it just flavors every relationship, every conversation, every interaction. And it's just, like, you wish that would just stop. You wish you can go back to the way things were. Or maybe, maybe, you, maybe it's not an accident. Maybe you were, like, really, really mad, and you did some things that you just wish you didn't do. Um, but you've, up to this point, just ignored it, thinking everybody else will, too. There might be a group of people or an individual out there that you just need to be humble and say, listen, I'm, I'm sorry. I, 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 was, I was in a place I shouldn't have been or I was thinking in a way I shouldn't have been or whatever you need to say. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Is there somebody out there that you have the courage to ask forgiveness from? I give you a minute to talk to God about it. Paul gives us the recipe for fulfilling God's commandment is this. When you catch someone messing up, you restore them with gentleness and you bear their burdens. Whose burdens can you carry? Here's what I think. I think that each of you has eyes to see when someone else is hurting, has eyes to see when someone else is carrying something bigger than them, and it's weighing them down. It's affecting their relationships. It's affecting their parenting. It's affecting their marriage. It's affecting their work. And you're aware of it. You don't know what to do other than just be aware of it. Maybe there's a way for you to bear that burden with them. You just partner alongside them and say, listen, I'm praying for you. Send them a text every once in a while and say, I'm praying for you. But whose burdens can you carry? And I'll warn you one thing about that. There's a really solid chance that you're one of a very small few and possibly the only one who knows that burden. Because I believe that God gives each one of us a different perspective. 
and the burdens that you're aware of, I may be completely ignorant to. And if you do not bear that burden with that person, there may not be anybody else available to do it. Whose burdens can you bear? I'll give you a moment. There's this image in the Bible of God building this tower, and at the bottom of the tower, the cornerstone's name is Jesus Christ. And this tower is built with stones and rocks, and these rocks represent us. And that layer by layer, we are being built into this tower that's been being built since the beginning, since the first, first church that ever churched. And you and I, we're just a stone in that. When I taught your teenagers, I, 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 I challenged them to remember what it was like to be that stone outside of the tower. You're just on the side of a hill with no purpose, no, no reason to, to be doing anything. And then someone in their grace brought you to the tower and said, would you like to be a part of this? And so many of your students have said yes to that. And they're in the structure because of God's grace in their life. Now, I challenge them to begin thinking, who is your one stone that you know is outside of the tower, who knows nothing about God's grace? And will you begin today praying for that person quietly? You don't even have to tell them. Like, you just know they're, they're far from God's grace. They know nothing of God's love. Their horizontal and vertical relationships are a mess. Will you commit to that one person and just lift them up? Who is your one? If you have one, in a moment, pray for them. If you don't have one, ask God to start showing you some folks in your life, in your work, that you can begin praying for. Your boss that's kind of a jerk, uh, pray for them. Uh, but who is it that God would have you pray for? I'll give you a moment. This whole, this whole love thing did not begin with Jesus saying, hey, I have a great idea. Why don't you guys take care of each other? It is, hey, I have a commandment. And so for us to follow the commandment is to be obedient. For us to not follow the commandment is to be disobedient to Jesus. It's not an option for us to love one another. And so the real question is, is what step do you have left to take? What, what's your next step in being obedient to Jesus? And And I, I'll give you some things I know from the stage. If, if you're in here and you're just kind of putting your toe in the Jesus water, you're like, listen, I, I don't know about this thing yet. I'm just checking it out. I know what your next step is. You may not have figured it out yet, but God is challenging you and asking you to say yes to Jesus. Your next step in obedience would be, I want to live for Jesus. I want my sins forgiven. Please, will you save me? That is your next step. Some of you have already said yes to Jesus, and you're like, well, what's the next step after that, Jesse? Well, the Bible kind of gives a list, uh, an order of things, and after you say yes to Jesus, the next step is to be baptized in a way that symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection. And so if you've said yes to Jesus and you've not yet been baptized, I can tell you from the stage with authority that your next step in being obedient to Jesus is to say yes to being baptized as a way to, 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 to display to your friends and family that you're a follower of Jesus. But here's where things get fun. 
If you've said yes to Jesus and you've already been baptized and you're like, I don't know what the next thing I'm supposed to do, the world is wide open. The possibilities are endless and they're going to be exciting and they're going to stretch you to ways that you've never been stretched. And they might even be a little scary. And you might have to say yes to things that you're terrified of. But God is going to call you to a next step. Instead of stalling out in your growth with God, will Carpenter's Way, each of you as an individual, begin saying yes to the next thing that God wants. I'm going to give you a minute to talk to God. If you don't know what your next step is, ask him to show it to you. If you do know what your next step is, ask him to give you the courage it's going to take to say yes to it. I'll give you one minute. Before the cross, people all over the region hated each other, and they had real reasons to hate each other. They fought each other. They didn't trust each other. But after the cross, a group of people formed that started growing. They loved each other well, and they took care of each other, and it started growing and exploding. It grew so quick, and people don't even really know why, but it grew so quick and so fast with so many people that the Roman Empire became scared of the growth that they were seeing in what we now call the church. They didn't know what was going on. Looking back, what we see is that group loved each other so well that anytime someone saw them loving each other well, they wanted to be a part of that. I stand here uh, as a pastor teaching this, but also as someone who's benefited from Carpenter's Way loving my family so well. So many of you have spent hours at my house, even in the last few weeks, just helping me do the nasty things of pulling out wet sheetrock and stuff. And thank you for doing that. Thank you for loving my family and churching well. I'm going to ask you today to draw a line in the sand and say from this point forward, no matter what, I'm going to fight for unity in my people, in my family, in my community group, in my church. I will not stand for disunity, and I will not let any burden go unhelped, uncarried. We're going to love each other well if we're going to follow Jesus well, okay? And if Carpenter's Way does that well, the world doesn't need us to teach a new thing. They will just come, and they will want to know how is it that a group of people loves each other well? Thank you for loving my family.